0: Dear Heavenly Father, what a gift it is to us that you've given us the Holy Scriptures, and even better, that you sent your Son to teach us. Lord, I pray that you would help me as I preach. I pray for each one of us that our love for you, our faith, our convictions would be strengthened this morning, for I ask it in his name. Amen. So by way of show show of hands, how many of you are fans of the Antiques Roadshow, TV show? i seen it. You know what I learned this week? That show's 41 years old. I didn't know that, but it started in England. It was a BBC show, and so it's most of those four decades are in Great Britain until it came over to other countries. It's just such a popular idea that people have something that might be valuable, and they don't know what it's worth, and then someone appraises it, and you, know, you want to hit the jackpot and go, oh my goodness, it's worth $100,000. I didn't know that. Those shows are so popular and there are examples of that kind of a thing all over the place where something of value gets exposed and then has a new reverence. Considering that the book of Hebrews talks about angels, even that particular um, passage, I I watched a movie this week called The Bishop's Wife. I'd never seen it before. It popped onto the Netflix queue and I went, oh, what's that? Old black and white movie. Um, There's an angel involved. Think um, it's a wonderful life, but the angel is very suave. Handsome, well-dressed, played by Cary Grant. And so in this movie, 1947 movie, um, the bishop is building a stone cathedral, and his priorities are all out of whack. He's trying to raise money for this, and he's neglecting relationships, and he prays to God to help him, and God sends Dudley, the Cary Grant angel. And he shows up, and instead of focusing on the cathedral, he starts focusing on all of the other relationships in the bishop's life, wife, uh, life. in particular his wife. Starts really taking her out, talking to her, winning her heart, um, and there's a professor who's good friends, and the professor has become basically atheistic, or at least agnostic, And um, in frustration, after 20 years of failed attempts at writing a Roman history, he gives this coin. He calls it his lucky coin to the bishop's wife and says, here, maybe, maybe it'll bring some luck to your husband with his project. Well, Dudley, the angel, finds it sitting on the end table in the bishop's office, puts it in his pocket, and when he and the bishop's wife visit the professor, he pulls the coin out and does what he does with everyone in the movie, and he wins him over with um, inspiration. And he says says this, this is one of the rarest of all antiquities. Julius Caesar had a hundred of these coins printed 2,000 years ago. Only a hundred printed. And that was when Cleopatra was visiting Rome. And rumor had it that he paid her hotel bill with these coins. And his wife knew about it. And apparently Julius Caesar's wife didn't share his uh, affection for Cleopatra. So she went and gathered up all the coins and melted them down into some jewelry for herself. This one coin is the one that she missed. This is a chapter of history that has not been written and you, professor, are going to write it. And of course, the professor is blown away by this. It inspires him. It breaks through his writer's block. He then takes this coin and he actually gives it with great generosity to the bishop, gives it back again to the bishop for his campaign. And he says, hey, take this. This is a museum piece. It is worth a fortune. So he's been inspired to write, he's become generous, and then at the end of the movie, he's actually darkening the doors of the church for the Christmas Eve service. The, the wayward professor has come back to God, and he's going to hear the bishop give the sermon, which Dudley the Angel had rewritten when the bishop wasn't looking. <laughs> Fantastic movie. It's really awesome. But we love it because this simple little coin is the rarest of all, and it's this great museum piece, and it's got huge value and it was just a good luck charm initially. And I bring that up to you because um, the value of things upon closer inspection can go up. The writer of Hebrews wants us to draw near to God, to press in, to look closer again at Jesus. Who is the Son of God? What does his coming mean? What, What does it mean for us? How does he speak a better word? And I want us to do that in this new series. I've called the series, Jesus is greater as the icon there, the little picture we made says that, you know, you've got the greater sign in the middle and it takes the entire world and it shrinks it down in this little panoramic view. Like all of a sudden the world looks a lot smaller, but still important. And Jesus is greater than all of that. That is really what you could summarize Hebrews to be about. Jesus is greater than angels. He's greater than the old covenant. He's greater than the priest system. He's a greater high priest He's greater than Moses. He's greater than Abraham. Jesus is greater than you and I realize. And upon closer inspection, we'll find that. In fact, my main point this morning comes from what I think might be the author of Hebrews' idea for writing, which was actually in chapter 2. In chapter 2, he says, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. And my point is this, drawing near stops drift. Drawing near to Jesus stops drift. And we're going to do that in this series. We're going to take six weeks. Obviously, we can't exhaustively look at Hebrews. In six weeks, we're going to look at some key sections of this and and consider how much greater Jesus is. So let me um, tell you a little bit about Hebrews to get us started. First of all, it's odd. It's unusual in that it's in the New Testament, and we don't know who wrote it. A lot of ink has been spilt over that, guessing. It was not Paul but whoever did write it knew Paul's protege, Timothy, because in the concluding remarks in the last chapter, it's just like a normal letter, and the author greets people and mentions Timothy. But it's unusual because there's no front greeting, you know, grace to you and peace from God our Father, Paul to the saints at such and such. None of that. It just launches right in, and it's, um, it's, it requires Old Testament knowledge. So whoever the audience was would have been Jewish Christians that understood the, the temple system and the sacrifices and what priests in the Old Covenant would have done. That's presumed knowledge in this. And so it makes it a little bit hard reading for us sometimes. It requires a little bit more homework. Now, in here, seven times the phrase, draw near, is used in Hebrews. Once, it's talking about something else. The day of God, Christ's return, is drawing near. It's coming closer to us every day. But the other six are encouraging us to draw near to God, to draw near to Jesus, to press in. Let us draw near to Him. So let's do that now. What I'd like to do is take only the first three verses. That's my focus this morning, the first three verses. And um, I'm going to look at the final word. I'm going to look at the fact that it's all or nothing. And I'm going to look at how to draw near. And I'd love for you to see this in your own hands. The few Bibles have, have this on page 998. Hebrews is kind of hard to find in your Bible because you think it should be in the Old Testament with the name Hebrews, but it's actually in the New Testament. And it's kind of tucked in there with Philemon, which is even harder to find. So just go to page 998. And I'm going to focus in on the first three verses. Verse one starts this way. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. So the first bit here is that this is a final word. In the Greek, it's kind of interesting because it's, it's poetic. It, it rhymes. It has kind of meter to it. The two words are polymeros and polutropos. Polumeros means many parts. And polutropos means could be taken as many patterns. In many parts and in many patterns, God spoke to us through the prophets. You could say bits and pieces. We weren't getting the full, clear picture. God was revealing himself, but he was doing it in bits and pieces. And there were patterns that were repeated. But in these last days, he has spoken to us through his son. We now have a perfect picture of God. We have a full revelation. We have all that we need. When he says in these last days, he's speaking about the era from when Christ first appeared to whenever that day in the future is when Christ will return. These are the last days we are living in. So there's no further revelation of God coming. Nor is there any possible, because in Christ, we have a full revelation of who God is. If you want to know what, what God is and what he looks like and who, what, he, what his character's like, you got to look to Jesus, and you see it. In Jesus, we have all that we need. We have everything we need for life, for salvation, for worship, to know God, to, to think of another uh, TV show. This is God's final answer. We have his final answer here to all of our problems, and that answer is Christ. And Hebrews will later in chapter 4 really speak in an elevated way of the Word of God. He'll say it's living and active. This book is alive. Unlike any other book out there, it is living and active and it's sharper than a double-edged sword, which means it'll cut right to your very soul. It'll cut right into you. It'll expose things, but then it also brings the gospel of grace to us. So it's the final word. There's nothing more we need. Nothing more is coming that we need to follow God. Now, a final word, but it's all or nothing. Look at verse 3 in here. Let me read verse 3 to you. He, meaning Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. What this means for us is that Jesus cannot just be neutral. You can't just take a little bit of religion. You can't just kind of passively go at this and think, well, you know, maybe I'll give a tip to Jesus, tip of the hat. Maybe I'll go to church this week. Yeah, you know what? eh." You can't treat it like that because when you draw near and you look at this, it is all or nothing. The very molecules of your body are being held together by the word of his power. The planets are staying in their orbit and not spiraling off into outer space because Jesus is holding all of that together. Everything was created through him. Everything. And so if that is true, then our lives have to change. We need to become clearer about him. We need to be more passionate about him. We need to not treat it like, well, I'm going to put a little religion in my life. i got to get back to church. we got to to treat it way more seriously. It's got to be a 24-7 thing. It has to really consume all of us. I would like you, if you call yourself a Christian, to be so clear in your word and your deed that all who know you will know she's a Christian, he's a Christian. Unquestionable. They'll say, oh, that person follows Jesus. I would love for that to be the case for you. I like how this author starts out without making any, like, support for this. He just says he is the radiance of God, the exact imprint of his nature. Doesn't make any kind of uh, philosophical support. He just states the truth boldly and lets it land. It's, it's a weighty truth, and he doesn't feel any fear about that. Jesus is upholding the universe. One, one scholar I heard said, this is nosebleed Christology. The view of Christ here is so high that you get a nosebleed when you go up there. But Christ is that great. He is that big and important. And we've got to press in a little closer. So let's do that. The radiance of the glory of God. All right, think back to the Old Testament for a minute. Think back to the Israelites. They're in Egypt. They're being called out of Egypt, and Pharaoh is not happy, so he sends his army after them. How does God manifest his glory back then? A huge pillar of fire and a cloud. And it's so big and fear-inspiring, that it actually stands between Pharaoh's army and all his horses and chariots and warriors and the Israelites who are passing through the Red Sea. It just stops the army. They, they can't enter into, they just, they're stuck. It's big and scary. And then it goes ahead of the Israelites to Mount Sinai. And again, smoke, fire, clouds, lightning. And the people need God and they want to come to him, but they're, they're afraid. And they say, Moses, you go up there. We can't or we'll die which is true. And God said, don't let them come closer or they'll be wiped out. So Moses, the intercessor, goes between God and his people in a prefiguring of the Son of God who will do the same thing. He goes there. But what we need is we need a way, we need a way to get to God. Well, here it is. He's the radiance of the glory of God. He brings the glory of God down to us at a human level. He becomes flesh. He becomes human. Jesus, the Word of God, becomes flesh and dwells among us. And what's so interesting about that is he's kind of normal, kind of normal. If you look at him in a superficial way, like many people did, he just looks like a Middle Eastern man who's a Jew and kind of a rabbi, and he goes around, and he, you know, has a following. And you can totally miss how not ordinary he was. In our early church service, the 745 service, um, there's a man who longer than I've been here, was a faithful worshiper every week. His name was Jim Ennie, And he passed away not long ago. Uh, on my vacation up to D.C., we went to Arlington Cemetery, and I took a picture of his gravestone. His, he was interred there, and I brought it back to his wife, Margaret. And I, I found this whole experience so interesting because for all the years that Jim was worshiping with me at the 745 service, I had no idea I was in the presence of a two-star general. He was a major general in the U.S. Air Force, And retired with huge honors. And so he's in Arlington Cemetery, and his gravestone has all these things. I had to ask Luke, another military man, to explain to me what all the letters meant, but very decorated and just so humble. And maybe he didn't talk about that because he and I together were in the presence of a higher ranking person when we came into God's house. It was about Jesus, it wasn't about him, but it was so unassuming. And you know, Jesus was like that in his earthly ministry, he was so unassuming. So much so that people who don't draw near think, well, he's a good moral teacher and a nice guy and kind to people. Until you draw closer and you go, wait a minute, his teachings were that he was God. He did radical stuff. God's glory, that radiance of the Lord, it was leaking out of him all the time. I mean, there are so many examples of this. Interesting when you're walking down the street with your rabbi and you're wondering what he's going to teach you about God's law, and some demon possessed man comes up and starts saying, Jesus, Son of God, what have you to do, to do with us? We know who you are. And he's like, be silent. And then you, you know, go back to the teach. It's weird, right? His glory was leaking out of him all the time. He goes up on the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter, James, and John go with him. He starts to glow brightly. Moses and Elijah show up and talk to him about his exodus, meaning Jesus' exodus from the world. They were encouraging him, the cross is going to be hard, that you got this, man. They were encouraging him, talking to him about that. On the way back down, Peter, James, and John are dumbfounded, and, and Jesus goes, hey, let's not mention this till a lot later. Like, how do you not talk about something like that? Or I love, he, he has a, a discussion with the Pharisees at one point, and they say something about Abraham, and he says, Abraham longed to see me. And they said, you've seen Abraham? How do you know what Abraham is longing to see? You're only not even 50 years old. And he says, before Abraham was, I am. In other words, I'm older than Abraham. I'm God. I am God. And they picked up stones to stone him because they realized what he had said. Or maybe one of my favorites is, you know, he he, uh, is talking to the disciples when they come back from a really successful preaching campaign. They're all excited because the gospel was effective and demons submitted in their name and people heard the gospel. And he goes, I saw Satan fall like lightning. Think about that. I created all things and I was there when Satan, a pretty important angel, rejected God and got cast out of heaven like a lightning bolt. I saw Satan fall like lightning. And then Jesus moves on to something else. Just kind of drops that and moves on. I want to stop there and have three chapters on how exactly that went down. Tell me a little bit more about what that rebellion looked like. Why was the serpent in the garden in the first place? Let's give me some more. I want more. But remember, this is our final word. We have what we need here. I want more, but we have what we need. So God's glory was constantly leaking out of him. And this word tells us that he is the exact imprint of the nature of God. In the gospel, John chapter 14, Philip after three years of being with Jesus, says, I have a request, Lord. Show us the Father, and that'll be enough for me. And Jesus goes, Philip, how long have I been with you? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I think Jesus was a little bit hurt that that three years of walking with him, he didn't get it still. But we don't get it still sometimes. But take courage because by Acts chapter 8, Philip the evangelist is doing all sorts of amazing stuff. He cleared up his theology, he had looked closely, he drew near to Jesus, and then he became a very effective witness for the gospel. So there's hope for us. Now, I want to encourage you to be passionate about your faith, to recognize the truth of this, of who Jesus is and what he has done out of love for us. This one through whom all things, including you, were made came and became human entered our world to serve us. He came down to our level. He condescended. Do you know why Anglicans read a gospel reading every Sunday, even if it's not the preaching text? We do it because although this whole book is God's Word, most of the New Testament is theology and commentating on the significance of Jesus, but Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John record the words and deeds that Jesus actually did and said. It's a way of looking specifically at the, this this imprint of the exact exact imprint of the nature of god the radiance of his glory we look at jesus over and over and over again that's how we draw near we draw near to him that way i want you to be passionate and unapologetic about your faith even if you don't have all the answers none of us do I remember Brent McHugh, our missionary, who was in Turkey for a decade, talking about an interaction he had with some people that were Muslims. And anytime there's a Bible on a table and a Quran, they would pick it up and put the Quran on top of the Bible to make a point. It was a, it was a battle of sorts. And it, in one conversation that Brent had with somebody, this man was very passionate about his, his you know, theological book, the Quran. And Brent realized to adequately communicate what he needed to, he got, he pretended to get worked up and passionate, and he goes, no, this is the word of God. All of my faith and trust is in this word. This is the one. Now, he wasn't actually angry or upset. In that culture, being passionate like that communicated something important. This isn't just a hobby for us. This is the truth, and our lives and our deaths and the future for all eternity is based on this. So I don't think you need to be hesitant in the, the marketplace that we're in of social or of spiritual ideas to say, I'm a Christian. I actually believe this stuff. Be bold about it. You know, people out there are very bold about their secular humanism or whatever. They're saying, ah, religion's the problem. If all religions would just get along and start, stop bickering with each other, it would solve all the problems. No, it actually wouldn't. In fact, that's a particular type of religion called universalism. And what it's saying is all religions are equally valid. They're going up the same mountain. We're all going to the same place. And me, in my, my view, I can see the whole mountain, and I'm telling you that that's how it is. Well, that's a very high view of one's own thinking, right? It's called universalism. Well, you can believe that if you want. I'm a Christian. I believe this. I think we need to be bold in that. I don't think you should be a jerk about it, though. You know, you know be kind, but be clear be clear. I believe this is the truth. Every religion adherent believes they have the right truth. If they didn't, they would convert. They would change. And so it's okay to say, no, this is what I believe is true. And this is different than what other religions say. And I can tell you how, the, how they're different. Well, in this case, my God comes down out of love, enters into humanity, and does an amazing thing to save us, which is my last point, how to draw near. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. Again, if you don't know about the old temple priesthood, you might miss that he's talking about the cross here, purifications of sins. The priests had to go in and do atoning sacrifices and all sorts of sacrifices for sinfulness on behalf of Israel. Jesus was the greater one, the great high priest, and he made one final sacrifice, and he did it on the cross. He died in our place. And then he sat down. My work is finished. And so sitting down, he also demonstrated that he is ruling. He is reigning over the universe unseen. Although many of us have eyes to see the upside down. We can actually see what's going on beyond what we think is the reality. There's a whole spiritual thing happening. And Jesus is ruling over that. And he is inviting us to bring our lives under his reign, under his dominion, under his rule. The way to draw near is to admit I am a sinner, and Jesus has died for my sins. I believe in your cross, Lord. When he died, the temple curtain, which separated the holy of holies in the temple from the outer parts, tore open. God broke out, and he made a way for people to come in, and that way was Jesus. So I want to encourage you to trust in his cross. I want you to draw near so that you won't drift in a kind of antique roadshow reversal. Don't let something of great value collect dust on it and be forgotten, and drift away. Press into it. Let us draw near in these six weeks in Hebrews. Ask God to inspire you to raise your faith level, to make you bold, so you'll worship him in a way that is worthy and appropriate for this one who's the radiance of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for sending your son. I'm so grateful for his sacrifice and for the ways that he shows us who you are. Lord, I pray that you would encourage us today, give us boldness, stir up within us a hunger for more. Forgive us, Lord, for the times when we've drifted away or we've treated our faith like an option. Make it first priority. Help us, please, Lord. For I ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.